0: And if they're doing it with someone else, they're not doing it with you. And so you got to get them to change to do it with you because there's nothing you're going to do from from a strict solution set that's going to be perceived as having a big enough impact back to our risk aversion. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Black Line Podcast. Mike, there is nothing you can do today that's going to get me in a bad mood.
1: I know because it's Valentine's Day and I know how much you love
0: that. I, I love Valentine's Day. It is, I look forward to it every year. But even more important than Valentine's Day, Mike, it is baseball season. Yes, sir.
1: Pitchers and I catchers say, reported yesterday and we are off to the races.
0: I say we shut down work for the next eight months. Sit back, watch baseball. What do you think about that? I would love to. I Did you get your season tickets I, this year, or what? Um. Okay, I said there was nothing you could ask that's going to get me angry. Uh, <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, the, the you know it's funny because the guy that that I do it with. Um, the good news is he upgraded the tickets, which he hasn't been able to do for years. So it's now from 10th row to fifth row. Oh,
1: very nice. Same section.
0: Same section. Yes. Exact same section. So basically instead of uh, seats five through eight, 10 rows behind the Nats dugout, it's nine through 12, five rows. So it's actually closer to home plate. Yeah. Actually closer to, to, to the on deck circle, but the cost of the tickets are it's 40% more. Wow. And, and, you know, it's four tickets and, Last year, I ended up with travel and other stuff and just – I ended up eating a lot of tickets and it becomes – you know, they're, 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 you hit a point in time where you're like, you know, the number of games you're going to go to, et cetera, it, it's not like you can't get great tickets on StubHub. Up. Yep. You know?
1: That's so, why – frankly, that's why we don't do it. Uh, yeah, you know,
0: so
1: – got to commit to a certain – got to commit to certain dates and –
0: you know, then something pops up, and then you're, I mean, yep. so the Nets have this exchange thing. I, don't, I always learn that something happens like an hour past the deadline to be able to exchange the tickets. Right. And then, <laughs> then you exchange the tickets and you got to find new tickets, and then you got to, and it's just like it, you, half the time last year, I felt like I had a job trying to manage, get rid of tickets or, yeah, tickets or you know, whatever. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, thanks for bringing that one up. Uh, <laughs> righty, so let's talk about something that that's probably even more interesting um to people listening than my season tickets or pitches and catches reporting. Jess wanted us to talk about um different time zones. But we're gonna we're gonna skip that conversation for for two Yeah, minutes. I don't
1: know anything about time zones.
0: Um so I have noticed in in the sales and marketing pantheon, do you like that word pantheon? Yeah. The gurus and the divas. I don't know. I'm, I don't know why I'm using those two words in the last few days are, I mean, you, you and I've talked about, they're, they're all like one hit wonders or one play wonders. Right. And, and so someone was somewhere when something worked. And so that's the way everything always has to be. And, and one of the things that I've noticed that, that I think is both um, big and important that, gets confused, but I know in terms of the work we do with clients is a, is a big issue that, that gets misunderstood is the difference between uh, selling to small mid-sized businesses and selling to enterprise or marketing. I and mean, let's talk about sales and marketing. we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll telescope in um, and, and they're unique beasts. And if you don't understand the, the difference between the two, I think you get yourself into a lot of trouble. And, yep. and Mike, I know you're, you're similar to me. You've, you've, you've sold both. You've marketed to both. Uh, so I thought we would talk about the difference between demand generation sales and marketing to SMBs and demand generation sales and marketing to enterprise. How's that sound to you today?
1: That sounds great.
0: Not going sure to like, get no. you set like last time? No, not last time, nope. We're not, we're not going to talk about pricing pages today.
1: Right. No, we're not talking about pricing. But our pricing page will be coming back up uh, here in the next few days. Yep.
0: So, from your perspective, um, compare and contrast demand gen for SMBs versus demand gen for enterprise.
1: Um, two, I did, I, well, out of the gate, two completely different beasts. Um, you know the you know the big bull and little bull story. Little yeah. bull goes, hey well, dad,
0: dad, dad. I don't I don't know I don't know if we're going to be able to sell that one on uh, on, on this. <laughs> I think you may have I'm found sure. our line. I mean, we had got right. arrows on, and we threw a lot of yeah. F-bombs there. So yeah. I'm not sure <laughs> where our line is. But, uh.
1: So the story of the big bull, little bull, the big bull wins in enterprise. Let's slowly walk down, enter, the, you know, enter through you know, some back door, side door, land and expand type scenario. Now, again, if, it depends on whether or not you're – big tech company, have a big brand, you know, there's all kinds of things that go into this. Are you a startup versus, you know, selling this to SMBs? Is,
0: so, again, so it's a totally
1: different, you know, it's a totally different approach. To,
0: to, to play the role of our younger listeners um, who are now dominating the sales and marketing environment, who maybe aren't familiar with that story. And so, so hit it a little bit more specifically in terms of, in terms of what you're getting at about the difference between um, SMBs and enterprise. So i so talk know, a little
1: bit more, like previous experience in selling to a lot of enterprise organizations, our approach was one, well one, the decision making process is typically far longer, there's far more people involved. However, you can simplify that process by going after a smaller piece of the pie. So rather than going after say, a tier one opportunity, tier two opportunity. No, just get your foot in the door with a tier three opportunity, smaller, not as many people need to you know, sign the check, et cetera. Get your foot in the door and then expand, support the living heck out of that customer and expand. Whereas I think in, you know, selling to SMBs, there's, there's less people involved in the decision process. Um, now there's also less budget, less people that you have to sell to, um, is that where you wanted me to go with
0: this? No, I want to, I, wherever you want to go. So, so what is the, so, so in, in 60 seconds or less, what's the difference between enterprise and SMB from a demand generation, from a building a business, building the business standpoint, whether you're in the marketing or the sales side?
1: Well, again, are, are we talking about, am I working for a startup or am I working for? Why does that matter? Well, if I, if I have a strong brand behind me, say IBM, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM is the mentality of executives within, within enterprise organizations. Whereas but, my approach as a startup is, yeah, but nobody ever got promoted for buying from IBM. Well, my, so my question is that… that are less, Enterprises are a lot less risk-adverse.
0: I'm so saying are I,
1: I, more risk adverse than than SMBs. I,
0: I I I would agree with that, but but going back to your question, you said it depends. When I asked what's the difference, you said it depends. Am I a startup? Am a, am I a this or am I a this? And my question is: is the difference between SMBs and enterprise different if you're a startup than the difference is if you're an established brand.
1: Yes. It, I, I believe, I believe it is.
0: So, so how, so what's the difference if you're an established brand?
1: If you're an established brand, I've got other, you know, I've got 50 other fortune 50 companies that are, that work are
0: But I'm asking what's the difference between inner. I'm asking the difference between them, not the difference between not, not you, you can pull things when you're selling to them or whatever. Ah, so, okay,
1: okay. Okay. Yeah. You're not, you're, you, you're, you're, you're asking if, if I put my, if I put my hat on where I'm on the customer side of things.
0: Well, yeah, I, you're, you're asking me, is the solution different is what you do. You're, you're answering is what you do different. If you, and I, and yes, it is different, but, but I'm saying, To to understand what you do, and I think you would agree with this, that ultimately what you do beyond just are you a startup, are you established, or are you an upstart, it's even more situational to, 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 to your specific situation. So what my goal today is to really try to dig into what's the difference for them so that people that are listening can go, oh, here's how I can craft the strategy or figure out if what I'm doing is the right thing, as opposed to necessarily prescribing what they should do. And I mean, I'm sure we'll share some of that. So
1: from their perspective, most enterprise organizations,
0: what they do is they
1: manage risk at a much higher degree than
0: SMBs. So you, so, so your perspective is that risk, risk aversion is the biggest difference. Yes. I, th- I, think, I think the manifestation of risk aversion is, is, is significant. And this will be a fun conversation. Is it true? And you're going to say yes, because you just said this. But I'm going to posit the question. Because you can't <laughs> get me in bed, but I can get you in yeah. um, Is it true that, that risk aversion is the driver? Because I actually don't think risk aversion is the driver. I think it's the... I think risk implication is the effect of the driver. I think it's the result of it, not, not the cause of what they do. So I'll share with you what I think the driver is. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Keep going. See, see, I, think, I think, I think true enterprise business, so let, let's define what an enterprise business is. An, an enterprise business is a strong established business that's producing, I would say at a minimum they're a $500 million company to, to, to be truly involved yep. in. And they're yep. probably larger than that. They have, they likely have at least a thousand employees, certainly more than 500.
1: Would you agree with that? I would agree. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: You know, it's weird because small businesses are defined as under 500 employees, which is just
1: yeah.
0: like, Hey, let's keep using the definitions from the 1940 um, <laughs> labor statistics Bureau um can you imagine having 500 employees like being the ceo i I think i would shoot myself god bless people like brian halligan who who were the ceo from seven to two thousand i don't know how you do it
1: well he was the ceo from what two to two to two thousand
0: um see how that got a little see that see see i I threw a little love to brian see see if i can get something get some swag in return um I think enterprise companies, the role of an enterprise company more than anything else is you manage the business. I think that there are, I think to a true enterprise company, to an enterprise company, there is one home run possibly every three to five years,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? And so your job in an enterprise company is not to garnish a Homer it's to manage the business it's 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 to move the line since it's baseball season you're
1: right? the, the aircraft carrier We're, right and don't and, run it great and
0: and so and so the 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 truth is there's not a lot if you're selling if you're if you're the typical sales or marketing executive or person, there's nothing that you're going to do that is going to have a dramatic impact on their business. If, if you're that size, the economy is going to have the biggest impact on your business, the cycle, the, the structural demand of the industry, um, the strength of your product or service, right? It, it, it's kind of, you know, 70, 80% and I'm pulling that out of my, you know what, but you know, a significant percentage of your, of your results are going to be predetermined. Yeah, where, they're, they're, they're,
1: right, uh, right. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're mean,
0: already,
1: you, as long as you don't, yeah. As long as you don't, as long as the
0: economy or. I thought you were going to say something else, as long as you don't fuck it up. Right. right. And, and so like the, the challenge of being in an enterprise company, if you're working in there, if you're an executive in there, there's very little that you can do to change the game for the positive. That's his, you know, that's a one thing every three to five years, like I said, to, yep. to change the game. Change the outcome, but right? But there's a whole lot you can do to the negative. Like you can screw the thing up, which is which is what drives the perception of risk aversion, right? I'm I am more risk averse because. A, I can do a lot more harm than I can do help. So I've got to be careful. And B, as long as I don't screw it up, as long as I don't mess anything up, my momentum will, will take care of the next 12 to 18 months. And so I'm, and I can't really get more than incremental improvement. Uh, I love watching different golfers sometimes. I used to love watching Ernie Els. Do you remember Ernie Els?
1: Yes, I do. Do
0: I remember. Yeah. Why? not everyone. Like maybe you said. I, I mean, you're a surfer, dude. I don't know. Maybe you were surfing when when Ernie Els yeah. was.
1: No, no. I I, I'm a, I do enjoy golf.
0: He had, and maybe still has. He has like the smoothest. He has the most effortless swing. And I I read John Feinstein's book a long time ago, A Good Walk Spoiled, and it tells the story of Ernie Els. Do you know where Ernie Els learned to play golf? In, in the front yard in South Africa. He, he wasn't rich. I, I think he it was on, He was like a teenager when he got onto his first golf course. He played on his front yard in South Africa, and the only thing he could hit were, were the plastic balls that couldn't go more than, say, 20 or 30 yards, right? And so one of the reasons why he developed this really effortless swing was if you can only go 20 or 30 yards.
1: Yeah, you can't. There's, there's right? nothing you can do no to No matter
0: how hard it. you do it. Right, right,
1: right.
0: And And so if I can only go 20 or 30 yards, then, then the amount of effort, you know, if you think about the risk pendulum, if you will, I, it it doesn't make sense for me to shoot for more than that because I can't get more than that and I can lose a lot more than that. And so I think that when you're marketing or selling to those companies, we have a tendency to come in and sell to them the same way we try to sell to to, to, to small mid-market businesses where we're talking about the big gains. We're talking about the home runs. We're talking about, you know, um, you know, I, I was working with a company and I very often talk to companies when moving on the SMB market, how are we going to help you exploit a competitive advantage? And, and they were kind of taking that messaging to enterprise. And I'm like, yeah, you're not, you're not getting an audience with the CFO because when you talk about exploiting the competitive advantage, he's either too dumb to understand that that's silly, or if he's smart enough to benefit from what you're doing, you've lost all credibility because you can't do that. That's right. That's already there. Right. And and so I, I think it's about, um, on, on the risk aversion, I think that that smaller businesses are trying to make bigger jumps and, and then they also have a lot less to lose right? Anybody that's ever started a business and gotten it to a million dollars of revenue, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The day you started off, there was no such thing as risk, right? Cause you got nothing to lose. And, and it's like, it's almost always right around that million dollar number. You wake up cause that was your first goal, right? I want to be a million dollar business. And you wake up and you're doing a million dollars. And first you realize, oh shit. Yeah. There's nowhere near where I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> right. But now you're also like it took longer to get
1: here than I've ever
0: thought it would. Right. But then you're also like, um, Oh shit. I got like the expenses of a million dollar business. I got, and all of a sudden you can lose something. Risk begins to mean something. It's, you know, if, for those of you that haven't run a business like that, if you, ha- the moment you have kids, your, your risk outlook changes because you know, when you don't have kids, there's nothing to lose. All of a sudden you have kids and it's like, Oh shit. Right. And, and so, Small businesses have a lot less to lose, so so the the downside is less. They have much bigger need to gain. They're they're operating at a lack of, and so it's really easy to come in with this promise of of, of we're going to fix this, we're going to make this bigger for you, um, and, and they need the bigger win. You know, uh, they need depending upon the size of the business. You know, a small business probably needs three to four home runs, equi- home run equivalents for them per year. And by the time you're a mid-market business, you probably need one home run a year. You know, that, that's how you become an enterprise business is one home run a year gets you to the point where then you can have one home run every, every three to five years. Yeah. And, and it, by the way, if you think about this at, you know, at the extreme, I think I read somewhere that if Apple started a $5 billion business, it, it would be the equivalent of a $100 million company starting a $500,000 business. Generating 500 that, you know, so, so $5 billion to them doesn't even move a needle. Doesn't so, move the needle, right? This is a super interesting. It wouldn't move my record. needle. And by the way, $5 yeah. billion dollars would move right. my needle for
1: the record. <laughs> Unfortunately, we'd have to cancel the podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know. Well, maybe we'd take the podcast from different areas of the world, you know, private jets, all that. But no, now that you now that you're making me think about it, this is a super interesting perspective because or observation. Um, cuz I I think about like how I got into Verizon and selling to them it was a very small group that was doing brand new things. They didn't have anything to lose. They were push they were they were pushing the needle and all now it was being overseen by the chief security officer of all of Verizon, this small group, but they were trying to make, they, they were trying to build that home run thing. And it actually has turned into be a home run. And they sent gobs of money with me. And then every time we would go to any of the traditional parts of the business, they would be like, get out of here. You're not on our certified vendor list, all those things. And then, as we continue to mature and mature and mature, we started seeing opportunities break open in some of those, you know, far more mature components of the business. Um, and I think, again, now that you've made you've made me see that observation or made that observation spot on with every single enterprise I've ever gotten into. I always said, let's get in the side door and then we'll land and expand. But actually, it's completely different than it's actually a different observation than that.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm going to circle back to, to, so kudos and, to that. Thank you, sir. It, it's why enterprise don't like working with small businesses. Yeah. Right. And, and small businesses get frustrated by it. By the way, it's why, it's why the larger company you are, the less likely you are to hire somebody who's out of the norm, even if out of the norm is great, because when you're a small company, one employee will make the difference. When you've got 500 employees, that great employee who's got that, you know, if you've got 50 employees, that great person who's got an eclectic background, done 50 different things and, and this and that, you know, that, that person's a game changer for you. They're the, uh, right, when you're 500 people, that person can't make that big of a difference and can wreak lots of havoc. You're a small business. You've got something great. You're you provide so much better service than than this other you know larger whatever. Well, I mean the fact of the matter is, if if you know until you hit a certain size and a certain scale, the likelihood of you being able to sustain you're you're a riskier bet. And so if, si- since the win doesn't mean as much, if I start working with a small business and then you run into trouble, now I'm in trouble because I counted on you. And so the downside, even though the downside is small, it's much, it it has much more impact. And so, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go with these guys over here. It's why larger companies do RFPs. RFPs are designed specifically to prevent you from making the worst choice. And, And so I always say that when you're selling or when you're positioning, you've got to communicate two things. You've got to communicate that you're the best and you have to communicate that you're the safest. The difficulty is, is that best and safest are often at different, you know, the, they the right, and right. Safety, right. And so when you're selling to a smaller company, you're going to emphasize best. When you're selling to a larger company, you got to emphasize safest. When you're selling to a larger company, you want to align and, and talk about managing the business and talk about, you know, your, your, your proposition and your story. And the consequence is going to be much more about loss avoidance than it's going to be about gain. That's how you get in there. That's how you get your wins. Now, the other thing that's different about it, which you kind of hit is that an enterprise business is oftentimes not an enterprise business. It's a an amalgamation of different businesses. And so the, you know, the Verizon example that you, that you had is not the same thing as selling to a small business, but it had the small business component to it with a yep. little bit of the large business aspect, and, and I think that's what you're referring to as the side door. Um, and, and I would agree with you there. Get in there in the side door, become the you know, become approved, demonstrate. The the beauty of doing that is somebody in that small business, and, and by the way, what Verizon is doing there, either on the front end or the back end, they incubate their home runs. Right? Yep. Small businesses
1: it doesn't just, yeah, right. It doesn't just appear overnight. Exactly.
0: Right. So, so small business says, okay, we need that. That's the home run. We need to get that in. That's our, that's our one thing. Large businesses of Verizon has 10 to 20 home runs being incubated. Right. And, and their expectation is over a five or so year period. One of those will hit as a home run. Um, half of those will get absorbed as a capability in something else and, and everything else will just get shuttered and, and, and thrown out. It's, it's kind of like a little venture fund within them. And yep. so if, if you're a small business, you know, if, you're, if you're that smaller business, find the incubator. You know, where's, that, where's that five-year home run you know, that's not supposed to have the impact on, on the direct cost structure or revenue structure of the company that they can win? So, so that's difference number one. And and so I, and I think that impacts your messaging. I think it impacts the feature set that you focus on. Um, and so when you're selling to both and you know, there's a lot of tech companies, you, you have this situation, um, you know, know, it used to be you were either a small business solution or you were an enterprise solution. Um, and those lines have blurred
1: significantly.
0: Um, yeah. And, and, and I actually think increasingly there's this third category that blends some of the two, but, but what I would suggest to people is um, you want to segregate your messaging um, potentially by using actual, you know, you might, you may consider having distinctly different websites and distinctly different value propositions and distinctly different branding. That's the, you yeah, know, that's the, um, Lexus, Toyota approach, um, if you will. But, if, but it, if you don't do that, and for a lot of companies that's too much, you, you wanna package it differently. Um, we, we, we see these pricing pages. I said I wasn't gonna talk about pricing pages. I'm I know, but you. hey, no, you it. it, it. But you know, you, but you so, you know, we say here, here's our, this, or this, here's our enterprise pricing or for enterprise pricing, you know, reach out. I've seen some people go, you know, X, X for enterprise. That's like a, that's a weakling approach to what I'm recommending here. I would name your, your product or service one thing for SMB and I would call it something else for enterprise. And and I would and I would and I would call it out in in my product, in my solution, in my service set. You know, this is for SMBs. Blah 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 blah. And all the messaging and everything about it, and and the language and the verbiage and everything, is going to be geared to to that uh, to that pace or, or or that position. And then call it something else for enterprise, and distinctly um, separate that message. Because when you combine it. A, I think you trigger fear, especially if you're a small company, you trigger fear in enterprise. Because everybody wants the home run, you know, yeah. the win. And and so, and, and and by the way, if you're if you're combining them, you're always talking gain. You're not talking manage the business. You're not hitting those key components. And so I think you create friction. And that's why, I mean, that's why no one ever got fired buying from IBM was because IBM never sold. Greatness. IBM said we're gonna take care of you. You're gonna be taken care yeah. of. Right? Burroughs came in and tried to say, Oh, here's our AMD comes in, here's our patent, this, that, and it's like, dude, we don't, I don't like a patent's not I'm not getting promoted because I bought something from a patent. As a matter of fact, there's nothing you can do that's gonna get me promoted. You vendor, there's nothing you can do that's gonna get me promoted. There is a whole lot you can do that'll get me fired. You get me fired. Yeah. Right. Um, So the second thing, which which goes along that, is that the pace is different.
1: The pace is extreme. And
0: and it's it's akin to, I, I think there's the two biggest dangers and I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's the biggest dangers when you're looking at at salespeople, and I think this applies to marketing as well, is if you were involved in a high velocity sale, so you're selling to small or mid-market businesses, you're selling relatively low ACV. And and, and by the way, getting back to your, well, what am I? If you're selling a $20,000 tech product today and you're selling to enterprise, a true enterprise customer, you're selling to a lower level person because that lower level person has authority to make those types of purchases, right? Yep. $20,000 purchase to GE is a, um, why it, it takes, it would take, it would cost GE more to approve, to, to have an approval that's process. That's for than, right. than, um, It was like, I remember when, when Bill Gates got to a certain net worth, someone published a, uh, it would now cost Bill Gates more in time. If he were to drop a dollar bill, it would cost him more to pick it up than to just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Could I be thought, a good thought,
1: problem to have. I thought that was funny. But if, so, you know, you, you, $100 bill, uh, $100 bill now.
0: And maybe, maybe, and, and maybe it even was that, but it was still, it was still pretty cool. Yeah, right. But, you know, you get into that, like I talked to somebody today, they make 200 sales a month. 200 sales a month. And they're trying to go to enterprise, right? And, and they're realizing and that, and by the way, 200 sales a month for their sales team. And what I'm gonna talk about is not actually real enterprise. It's, it's midway to enterprise, 20 sales a month. Well, you think about it, oh, 200 sales a month, 20 sales a month. Oh, that's gonna be easy. No, it, I mean, you think about all these guys who are selling SaaS, right? they've got to close five deals a month. I, I remember selling for a company and i Lord knows I've advised many a company where if a rep called, closed four deals a year.
1: Oh, did, did, well I was in that. Yeah. I mean, I was in that. I, I've been on both ends of that spectrum,
0: but well, I'll tell you, man, by the way, if you take the person who closed four deals a year and you put him into an environment where he has to close four sales a month, he'll probably be able to do it. Yeah. You take somebody who, around. Who, who went from four per month to four per year, most of them can't deal with it.
1: Their soul, their soul is crushed. I have a very good friend right now who went from, he's always been in that kind of transactional, call it 40K to 150K sale. He was making multi, grabbing multiple customers per, per month, new customers. Now he's in an enterprise role. If he's lucky, he's going to sell three deals. And it is literally soul crushing for him. He, 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 he's, he doesn't even, he, he's beside himself. He does not, he does not know what to do. And his mind is, it works at a different pace than somebody that, you know, is used to, is used to working in that type of environment.
0: So I was talking to somebody today that I know well, um, who went from, startup unicorn to is now at a highly funded enterprise complex sale place. Um, and he was saying, he's like, you know, it's not the same. He he was talking about how field sales is different than when everybody's inside and this and that. And he said, you know, the other thing that's interesting is like, I mean, we used to be able to just, you know, ring the bell and and highlight this guy because he closed this deal and highlight that guy. He's like getting people to debrief and talk about it, It's like, it's just so hard. And I, And I said to him, and he really, he, he totally got it when I said this to him. I said, you know, the, the funny thing is when you're selling small business, close, small men, close, ring the bell, we're going. You go enterprise, you close the sale. And if you're lucky, 90 days later, they signed the contract. Yeah. By the time the deal is actually closed, it's like anticlimactic, right? And, and, and the salesperson's either gone off to something else. They don't even remember it because it was later or- they had to deal with this red line and then that and then oh it, it now it gets to all these detail things and so that rhythm just totally messes you up. The time frame messes you up and and so if you're selling an enterprise, you need to have what I like to call reason to talk place. Because things don't like if you're selling the you know the velocity and the pace and SMB. Um, And, and even in some SMBs, as your, as your solution gets more complicated, the same type of thing happens, right? When you go from short sales cycle to long sales cycle, the pace is totally different and you've got to keep things going. Yeah. You've got to, you've got
1: to have a reason to reach out. You've got to have a reason. It's it's very, totally different.
0: 20 years ago. And this is where the, you know, the, the old school, um, you know, you've seen the pictures of, of the, you know, character of the salesperson like this, right? Uh, Well, that's where it came from, right? Because 20 years ago, the way you kept it going was you just said, Hey man, how's, how's the kids? How's the this? How about this team? How about that team? You know, Hey, let me send you some donuts or whatever. And that, because you just needed reasons to kind of keep talking. Hey, by the way, what's going on with this right now? that's the stuff where like how many reps are still something that that's all they can do. Um, I was uh, the, the, the guy I was talking to today told me to get it to the point where they just did an analysis and to get it to the point where um, an opportunity became a high probability pipeline opportunity. So past mid stage where it could truly become forecasted. So I'm not even talking closed, right? That they identified it was, I think, seventeen touches, not seventeen attempts. I'm I'm not that, that that number does not surprise me. No, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. But but you know we keep hearing all this SDR bullshit. You know, oh, it takes eight to twelve attempts. So right, I'm gonna send seventeen crappy emails, and and they count like you didn't open your email. They count yeah, that as a. Right. Right, right. I'm talking about actual interaction touches of 17, and what they identified was on average, they were getting eight, right? And and he was talking to me about, you know, that they're trying to figure out how to deal with that. And I said, the problem is, most people don't know how to talk to you 17 times without saying, are you ready to sign something? Right. Right. And, and so what ends up happening is, is that first off, I begin to hate my CRM because I'm like, Oh my God, I got to call this guy again, or I got to call this gal again. What am I going to talk to him I, about? I don't, even, right.
1: I don't even know what I'm going to say. Right. It, it, absolutely. Right? No game, no game plan. No, no playbook behind it. it, it that, yeah.
0: Then I call and because it's a valueless call, I actually hurt. The change. opportunity versus right.
1: help it. Right. Absolutely.
0: And, and, and so what I was telling them is I'm like, look, there are some people you could do it. I can do it. I don't love it, but I can do it. Right. I can figure out a reason to talk to you and I can keep it going and I can, and I can make it work. There are some people that just can't do that. Right. They just run out of stuff. And so you've got to, and, and so what they were talking about doing was, well, we need to hire a different sales profile is what they were saying. And I said, dude, good luck on that. Cause Cause they're few and far between and there's no way to know until after you hired them. So you, right. and not only that, now you've got to get them involved
1: in a sales cycle and you're not going to know for at least nine months. And, and then what are you going to do? Then you got to just start over again, which is another three, four months. Then you could be two years, three years down the road and still be in the exact same situation.
0: And, and, and so I told myself, you've got to make it structural, build the plays out right? Lots of quarterbacks come in. They don't know how, like, it, it's kind of interesting. There are not a lot of offensive coordinators in football who were quarterbacks. So I'm, I'm reading this interesting, really interesting book. Um, it's the story of Bill Walsh, Bill Parcells, and Joe Gibbs. By the way, did you know that every coach in the NFL is in one of their trees? Really? Yeah. Like, and, and, Bill Walsh is like, I think three quarters of the league. Yeah, uh, I know
1: Parcells has a has a hefty chunk.
0: Oh, by the way, when I'm listening to this. It's amazing. Just like it, the nature of their relationships and how they intersect, and it's so incestuous. It's not even funny. Yeah. But what what they talked about, you know, so Joe Gibbs was a college quarterback. He played at San Diego State. Not nothing special. They talked about where he became an offensive quote unquote genius. It's when he became an offensive line coach. And they, and they were talking about this and they, like, it's the offensive line coach and it's the, off, it's the offensive line coach who is the most creative coach on the staff most often, because you've got to deal with more, you got to you know, bring things together. It's more of a teaching position, so on and so forth. And my point on this is I might have the talent to, to read a defense, to make a throw, to be extraordinarily agile. Right. But that doesn't mean I know how to design the play. That doesn't mean I know how to, and and by the way, when I say I know how to read a defense, it's I know how to read a defense when you give me the cues for how to read a defense. Right. Yeah. So it's the same thing. We don't, if you're trying to grow a quarterback, if you're an NFL team, you don't, you don't hire a quarterback who's got that all pre-built. You put a quarterback into a system that that brings their skill set, matches it into your system and allows them to shine. And, and that's where the playbook comes is you got to have more plays that generate, you know, reasons to have conversations, reasons to keep things going along and so forth. And, and, and that is true. By the way, he talked about 17 touches that's on bona fide opportunities, right? Where I think that he and others are missing the boat completely. If you think it takes a long time and, and you actually have more experience on this directly than I do. If you think it takes a long time, to get from the beginning of the end to a sale relative to other sales in enterprise. That's nothing compared to getting a sale started. Correct. Right. Imagine if you will, that you want to do business with, um, Amazon web services. Here's my bet. If you want to make a big sale, let's say you want to make a, a five to $10 million sale to Amazon web services. And, and, and by the way, some people might say 5 to $10 million. Oh my God, that's huge. That's less than a rounding error to, to Amazon. <laughs> right. I'm going to bet you that it's a two-year process. Minimum. Minimum. To get the first process. real conversation. Yep. But that, and, and so like I've, everyone talks about... I've, I've, I've literally had
1: four years of... First, I got the person on the phone four years of either outreach, et cetera, until I finally closed the deal. And, and not and, and these are not, some of them aren't like the Fortune 500. These are, you know, that, that middle ground, mid enterprise, you know, type organization.
0: And, and, and the reason is they're managing the business. Yeah. Right. And so, the the opening for for a new thing to come in, they open up. It's a small opening, and it opens up very intermittently. Yeah.
1: Right?
0: And 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 so and that's not like two years of hey, so you ready to talk? Hey, so it's like two years of legitimate. Facilitating insights.
1: relationship. That's
0: yep. Cool. Yeah, and you, and so go
1: back to. Going back to one of our favorite podcasts, Steve Powell said in any given year, what was it? Yep. Only 7% of their entire addressable market yep. was even considering a solution that they could be a fit for.
0: Yep. And, and, and you know, people talk about account-based marketing. See, that's account-based marketing. That's account-based. Yes. That is, I am going to invest, I, I'm going to invest $40,000 to get the first conversation. Right. And, and so you better know your customer there. And, and so that's, so from a selling standpoint and a marketing standpoint, when you're focused on enterprise, you need to be clear on, on what your impacts are, because if you want to win quality sales and, you know, I think people are getting lost because we're so focused on winning sales that, that we we're celebrating wins at margins that are embarrassing. Yeah. Um, we're getting edged down. We're getting compared. We're begging. We're pleading. If we want to win that quality sale, we've got to invest in it long before we're we're gonna we're gonna get it. We're gonna get the money back. Um, and and so, it, you know, it's funny because the people who complain typically about the risk aversion of enterprise are actually pretty risk averse themselves. Yep. Right. They're not willing to invest that time.
1: So, here, so I, I've said this to you before, I think, but there's always been this running comment or joke uh, between me and a lot of my enterprise rep friends. Um, and it's, if, you're, if you're considering going to a startup or even a you know, well-funded startup that sells primarily to enterprises, do not be the first sales rep on the street. Be the second because that first sales rep is going to get a lot of conversation started and it's going to look like he's done nothing over the course of the first two years, even though he has started the conversation come in after that first rep, after the first two years. And he gets so frustrated that he leaves or he gets fired because he hasn't closed anything. And within the next year, you're making, you know, you're bankrolling, you you still have to work hard, but you're bankrolling some of that work that that. Oh, you, oh, you mean the second rep,
0: for the company.
1: No, no, no. This this like if if I have a new geo, it's called the Mid Atlantic region, don't be that first rep in the mid Atlantic region. Let somebody right. else conversation right. right. talk. Right. Right. So right. right. okay. I thought
0: I thought you meant let let the sales rep from Company X get in there first, then you're the sales oh, rep. No, from, no, well, no, no, There's no, there's no. some there's some truth to that too, right? They no, did no, all that, yeah. right. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. If you are applying for a job and, you, and they say, yeah, you're going to be the first rep for this enterprise position, then you either want to insist on a very, very large guarantee yep. or you want to run because there is no way you will. I, by the way, when I tell people that are hiring their first rep on the enterprise side, I say, if you're lucky, you'll hire the right rep on your third hire. And I tell them, I said, you know what? Hire the first two as fast as you can and get and, and don't spend the money there because get them in there and, and use them for learning. Use them for R&D. So that is absolutely true. If you are interviewing and you're the first enterprise rep, you either better get a huge guarantee or I would run, don't walk out of that. I, I had this
1: very conversation with the, a friend of mine who's the CEO of a – I mean they've raised tens of millions of dollars – He was looking to build out his sales rep because they finally got their, you know, their, their beta version. They're about to go GA looking for sales reps. And he went through his whole model and his whole thought process. And I said, dude, if you really want a rock star, you got to give them a four year guaranteed contract. And he argued tooth and nail as to why that wasn't, why that was not going to work. Well, I bet if I talked to him today, he would go in retrospect, you were right, Mike. I should have Damn. given – because the turnover that he, he's ex- experiencing costs actually more to the business than giving a couple of rock star sales reps four-year contracts.
0: Well, correct, because any any rock star you know, – rock stars don't sign for less than rock star money. Right. So when you go, I can get a rock star without paying – a rock star premium? And then you say, oh, well, we'll give them equity and things like that. But the, the, the challenge is the
1: rock stars have already been through those situations before, and they're not. I'm, and and I, like you said, enterprise I, – I, you, you nailed something. Most enterprise sales reps – I shouldn't even say most. Now that you've made me think about that piece of it too, probably 95% of really, really, really good enterprise reps are incredibly risk adverse. Themselves,
0: yeah. Salespeople are great. Salespeople are risk averse. Great salespeople right. are.
1: Risk-averse. And, I, I, and, and it, it makes me think about kind of the 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 top enterprise reps that I know. I mean, these guys are ultra risk
0: averse. You know, we 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 should do a thing on on hiring salespeople because you know yeah. the person. You know, well, they need to understand the vision. I'm looking for someone that can be excited about the vision as I am. Okay, great you're going to, you're going to get a poser. You're going to get somebody. See, here's the thing, right? Especially when you hire a salesperson, one of you is the seller and one of you is the buyer. yeah, Right. And let me tell you what, if you want to, if you think you're hiring a rockstar salesperson and you're not paying a rockstar premium, then you just got sold.
1: Yep.
0: Right. And. It,
1: but so, it is, so but still, you, 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 you also, and I think you're missing a little bit of, a very important point that you put here around the attempts and touches in, in kind of that enterprise sale it's amazing that organizations that sell to enterprises don't have those playbooks because i can tell you they don't well even as an so, sdr they're doing their sdr as a disservice and i would say those, those companies that are have a large SDR group that's trying to open up doors for the enterprise. They've churned through those people. I mean, you and I have obviously gotten into not arguments, but debates about the length of an SDR within a company. And that's been my experience this is typically less than two years. But part of the reason being is because they're not set up for success because of what you just said, which is they don't know, they don't know how to keep reaching out to the same person so that they can get those attempts in. In order to facilitate an opportunity, and the same thing I hope think holds true for even your mediocre outside sales rep in the enterprise space.
0: Yeah, the, you're you're absolutely right, and and again, this is this is probably a subject for another podcast. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean I,
1: I didn't mean no uh, no no no.
0: It, 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 I it, but I, I I want to hit on this point. Uh, again, again, it came up on on my conversation earlier. He, you know, he was talking about how they were identifying you know, the criteria of, you know, this meeting to that meeting to that meeting and what was successful, et cetera. And I said to him, okay, I'm, I'm curious though, how does that data compare to the, the meetings that were set by your SDR that didn't get to that point or didn't, and, and, and like, oh, I go, I don't know. Because nobody, nobody or very few people actually do comparative analysis of, of the line to success and the line ultimately to failure and compare all the way through. Um and I and I said to him, I said, you know, you gotta be really careful. So it's like the big thing was, and I give them credit because they're they're beyond what most people um three key measurements are um meetings set, meetings held, um, early stage opportunity. Right. Which is good. Most people don't go to early stage opportunity in terms so they yeah. were they were they were they were solving for early stage opportunity. And I said to him, and, and so we noticed this, and this rep is doing this, and this rep is doing this, and that's the type of rep that we get. I said, okay, great. I said, how does that compare to the, to, to the meetings that don't progress to that level? You didn't have the data. And I said, here's the thing that you got, here's the thing you got you to gotta understand. Everything that happens after that meeting is set, and not even the meeting is held. Everything that happens after the meeting is set by an SDR. And for the most part, I don't care how good the SDR is. I don't care how good the salesperson is. Everything that happens after the meeting is luck. And, and, and what I mean by that is everything that happens after the ball hits the bat is luck. Everything that happens after the ball leaves the pitcher's hand is luck. Right. Um, and, and this guy's a big Boston Red Sox fan. So I said, it's um, and I'm pretty sure it was Pedro the, the year that the Red Sox signed Pedro. And I could be off on the year. So please don't look up Google and tell me I'm wrong. It's the concept that I'm getting across here. But um,
1: Pedro. <laughs> I'm at, right after this. just stuff.
0: Um, Pedro had a higher ERA and got signed to a really big contract. They're like, oh, no, no, Pedro's small. Look at that. He had a really bad year. He's on the downside of his career. I can't believe the Red Sox or whomever paid uh, that much money. And and the reason I'm pretty sure it was the Red Sox and Pedro is because I'm pretty sure it was Theo Epstein because it's a very money ball thing. And they said, no, if you look at his actual core numbers, percentage of strikes to balls, velocity, uh, balls in play, hard hit balls in play, All the core things that that a pitcher has any influence over, they were totally equal to the year he won the Cy Young Award, right? It just happened to be that that year, more of the balls that got hit landed in places where there weren't players. Because I don't care how good of a batter you are. And yes, this is true, Sammy. I don't care how good of a batter you are. Once that ball, once you're swinging the bat in a live situation, you do not control where that ball goes. Right, there's things that you do beforehand that, that increase odds and probabilities. But once that ball hits the bat, it's luck. Then what we do is we over attribute this stuff, right? We say he's a clutch yeah. hitter. Yeah. Right. Right. And th- and that's why today when you're watching baseball, you'll hear about his batting average on balls in play. Yeah. He's really slumping, but his batting average balls in play is a lot lower. He's like a hundred, a per- hundred points lower than, than, where he was before so we're we're pretty confident he's gonna you know he's gonna come back or yeah he's really hot but his batting average of ball it's at on, he's like 50 points higher than anybody else right now yeah we know it's gonna come back down because once right after that it's locked if you're an SDR and you're thinking meeting right after the meeting set everything else is locked we then look back and go oh well you know that guy, well, he asks questions like this, or he did this, or, you know, he's introverted. We need to, oh, he's extroverted. Oh, he tells, right, and it's all, no. What, what you got to do is create the environment of, of what allows that thing to move next and, and, and realize, and this goes to, you know, Steve Powell as well, right? 70% of every outcome is luck. And, and, and that's why they don't have those playbooks is because, you know, if you're an enterprise they're, company- they're, yeah,
1: that, no, Right, they're overanalyzed. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, but, but they're also, see, they're banking so much on luck
1: yeah. and they're
0: running around for that secret sauce because if you're a mid-sized business and you land a whale, it makes all the difference in the world, right? And, you know, again, look at the underlying core of those businesses and you see they're not getting strong. In our time left, I want to hit on what I think is the biggest difference between- Enterprise and SMB. And, you don't and, think
1: big bull, Little bull is? No. <laughs> I
0: Close. That's the I'm sales done. guy. That's the sales guy. That's the sales guy. <laughs> See, that's more like, like the enterprise sales rep is, is big bull. By the way, the greatest sales reps in the world that, that sell to enterprise, smart and boring. They're smart yeah. and boring. You meet them, they, you don't like this guy's a sales guy? Huh? Um, sorry. But the biggest difference consensus. Enterprise is consensus driven. As a matter of fact, increasingly, and this is relatively new, increasingly if you sell to enterprise, there is no decision maker. There is no sell to the decision maker. There's no, like who's, you know this, who's the one person that can say yes? Right, right.
1: I I, I don't, I, I mean, the fact that anybody still has that notion that
0: there's now, a decision maker. It, 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 it. Okay. Now, now here, here's the thing that, that gets really different though. Cause some people go, "Oh no, no, I do, I do complex sales. So we have multiple people and there's no question in SMB. We've got more people involved. It's getting more complex. It's crazy. Some of them are getting to consensus, but they're not, they're not truly consensus. So it's like, here's the continuum of, of selling. And, and by the way, I'm saying selling this totally applies to marketing and content as well. Selling to an individual, that's a business to consumer sale. That's a simple B2B sale, right? One person, that's a simple, right? That's selling to multiple influencers. That's where complex sales used to be. Already there's five people. I used, to, I used to ask the question, if you're involved in a sales situation and there are five people involved in the decision, how many, um, how many decision makers are there? And everyone go, oh, well, there's one because they thought they were, no, oh, no five. there's five. There's five, right? Because right? you've got five different sales processes. I right? said, so that's why it's complex. Oh, consensus, <laughs> consensus is not that. Consensus is multiple people, single process, right? Consent, and, that, and that's, why, that's why enterprise sales bog down where they are. Um, And that's why the strategy for activating enterprise opportunities, activating enterprise engagements and managing them is totally different because it is, there's a difference between managing five people to a decision and getting five people to make a decision. Right. And, and that is, that that's true in the enterprise. It's coming down. It's increasingly coming down. Agree. And people are talking about content is dead. By the way, can I just tell you that drives me crazy? Content is dead. Who's saying that? Like I'm not gonna name names, but people are saying content is dead. And here's what I say everything is fucking content. Content can't be dead because if content were dead, we would be making say people would be buying without saying anything, reading anything, or doing anything. Everything is effing content. Um but, but they're right. You know what's dead? You know what's dying? Thought leadership content is dying. Yep. And, it's, and it's dying a well, horrible- you know, we've,
1: Right. Yes, we've, we've talked about that before. I totally agree.
0: But you know why it's such a horrible death? Because you know what thought leadership content does? It increases visits. It increases views. It increases repeat visits. It increases downloads. It increases time per page. It increases just about, every metric used by growth and demand generation executives. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't drive change. As a matter of fact, you know what it does? It reinforces the status quo, right? Because we're trying to get this one person to go, wow, these guys are brilliant. We need to work with them. That's not how it works, right? If you want to get enterprise Enterprise is either doing something or they're not. And so if they're not doing something, then you've got to get them to change to do something. And if they are doing something, they're either doing something themselves or with somebody else because they're not doing it with you. Otherwise you wouldn't be, right. And so if they're doing it themselves, you've got to get them to change. So they'll do it with someone else. And if they're doing it with someone else, they're not doing it with you. And so you got to get them to change to do it with you because there's nothing you're going to do from, from a strict solution set that's going to be perceived as having a big enough impact back to our risk aversion, right? There's nothing to do there that's going to cause them to go, yeah, you know what? We should, we should deal with the pain in the ass of change. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. Right. If, if, you got you to gotta teach that, that not changing is more painful. And I've been saying this for 15 years. So this is not new for me, but this used to be the competitive advantage to selling. This is now becoming table stakes. You've got you've to be able to sell why not changing is more harmful than changing.
1: Than changing, right.
0: And if you don't make that sale, if you don't make that point, and that's about content, that's about conversations, that's about everything. Right. If you're not driving that type of frame-busting insight, then you're going to be sitting on the sideline, waiting for the opportunity where they come to you and they dictate the terms.
1: Waiting for luck.
0: Waiting for luck. Waiting. Amen, for brother.
1: Getting- I, amen. I, I, you know, the, the, I don't. I don't have anything to add. I, I think that. Amen. Will you be my Valentine?
0: I will. <laughs> I will. And on that note, on that, I think that's like the first time we've actually ended a podcast in complete agreement. So we will, yes. we will end a high note and thank everybody. Uh, by the way, we've got some great guests that are getting queued up. Um, HubSpot's new head of sales enablement agreed to come on the show. Mark Killens, um, who's taken over some stuff on the conversational framework from Drift. He's gonna join. We got some other really interesting people. So uh, we'll, we'll get back to breaking up just the Mike and Doug conversation that we'll still keep that going. But uh, until next time, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Black Line Podcast.